All right. Hey, if you have your Bible, open it up to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Uh, we got a lot of people on vacation tonight. I know it's spring break for a few schools, and it's raining outside, so the fact that you guys are here is awesome. And we've been walking through James, and it's been uh, challenging for me because, honestly, sometimes we come to passages that I don't really want to preach because either the way that uh, the Lord speaks to me through the passage, and honestly, it's just hard, or honestly, sometimes we come to passages, and and for me, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, God, what are you trying to say through this passage? So we're going to be in James chapter 4 tonight, and as you find James chapter 4, I want to tell you a little bit about the GFBC Basketball League. Uh, if you don't know about it, we have a basketball league here at the church. And church and sports, they are a tough combination. It is a dangerous mixture. And if you've ever been to a game, or guys, if you've played in the league, um, you know what that is like. And so a few years ago, I wasn't here for the event, but a few years ago, um, there was a game that was going on, and uh, there was an aggressive opposing teammate who was coming at another person who happened to be a deacon in the church. And again, if you can see this moment in your, in your mind, that the deacon sees the opposing aggressive teammate coming towards him, and he simply responds by throwing, I don't know if it was a right hook or a left hook, but it landed on the guy's face, knocked him out. I'm not sure if that guy's a deacon anymore, uh, but if you want to go to any of the GFPC basketball games, you can go on Monday night at 6, and it's free admission. Here's the thing. A lot of times, athletics, you've probably seen on TV, maybe funniest home videos or just crazy videos on Facebook, where sometimes at athletic events, these fights break out. If you've seen in other countries, soccer games, where the, 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 uh, the people are going crazy against the other team, well, church is a little bit of an unlikely place for those things to happen. But when we come to James chapter 4, James is actually addressing fights and different dissensions that are going on inside the church. And unfortunately, inside the church, we find some of the most hostile fights because sometimes it's a hostile environment. And I'm not talking about punching and kicking. I'm talking about the words that people use. I'm talking about the attitudes that some people have towards others. And so James is addressing a particular church and he's talking about some of these issues that have arisen in this particular church that he's talking to. And so the title of tonight's message is The Me Mindset. The Me Mindset. So let's start reading in verse 1 of James chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So number one tonight is this. If you're taking notes or if you just want to jot it down in your memory. The cause. The cause. So in verses 1 through 3, James tells the believers the cause of these fights. These fights are a result of Christians having a particular mindset that we're calling the me mindset. And it's a mindset that says everything revolves around me. Everything revolves around what I want, my ideas, my opinions. It revolves around my will. And this opposes God's will. This opposes what God would have us to live for. Uh, this mindset, it says, if I don't get it my way, I won't be a part of it. I'm going to leave. I'm going to take my ball and go home. 
How many of us that have grown up in church have seen different people that have left church because somebody may have hurt their feelings, maybe because their opinion wasn't heard, maybe because their voice wasn't heard, and they said, you know what, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to leave the body of Christ. Forget trying to mend things together. I'm just getting out of here, and I'm going to take my problems elsewhere. Again, this is what, what James seems to be addressing. He talks about these wars, these fights that are going on in different people's lives. And what we see is that this is an issue even in today's church. We've all been in arguments before. We've all had things said about us before, or we all know people that have experienced these kinds of things. Does anybody watch American Idol? Does anybody watch that? Like three of us? That's awesome. So me and Angela, uh, we, we started watching this season. They brought it back, if you didn't know. They took a year off, again, to build up a little bit of suspense, and then they brought it back. Um, and so we've been watching uh, this, this year's American Idol. And if you haven't seen the show, if you, or if you have, then you know that after they try out, they make it to Hollywood. And in Hollywood, they have to get together with a group. And they sing as a group and perform as a group. Again, these are people that are competing against each other, but they have to work together at this particular moment. And so the other night, they were showing these groups. They get together. And this is always a high drama night because you have all these individuals who now have to work together. All of these individuals who have a particular style, a particular of, of, of whatever it is, the way they sing, the, the, the types of songs they like to, like to sing. And, and now they have to work together as a group. And so there was this one moment the other night where this kid was, I say kid because he was very young, he was in a group, but he wanted to do it his way. And his mom was there. And so his mom was saying, mm-mm, y'all gonna change how you do this part. And so it was very tough for this group to figure out what they were gonna do because there was one person who said, no, we're gonna do it my way. Unfortunately, oftentimes in the church, we're the same way. Hey, it's gotta be about me. Hey, it's gotta be about my style. Hey, I don't like that song. Why are we singing it? Again, the list goes on and on and on. There are churches that are closing all the time because people couldn't agree on something and people began to leave and they couldn't forgive each other. They couldn't love each other. They couldn't set aside their own wants and opinions. And so we see that James is talking about this particular mindset, this, this me mindset. In verse 2, he says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now, this word lust is used to, to describe a type of desire that is evil. It, it is wicked. It's, it's this idea of wanting something that I can't have or I shouldn't have. And we see that these people, they have selfish desires. So they're desiring things that are outside of God's will. They're desiring things that are outside of God's plan. And they're longing for these things because there's something that they're trying to satisfy themselves with. We see that these selfish desires are causing hateful words and actions and attitudes. In James chapter 3, we talked about that. We talked about the words. James talked about people and the power of their words. And so we see that apparently in this particular church that this mindset had affected their words and it was also affecting their actions. It was affecting the way they treated each other. And so there was a lot of hate. There was a lot of division. And we see that, that this was causing all sorts of issues. Lust, greed, coveting, envy, all these mindsets and attitudes, they never can be satisfied. A greedy person is always greedy. When they get money, they, they're not satisfied. They want more. A lustful person is always lustful. 
once they finish lusting after one thing, they lust after something else. An envious person is always envious. These things are, are, are attitudes and mindsets that hold people in bondage. And isn't it interesting that we live in a world that would say, get as much money as you can, sleep with as many girls as you can, guys, you know, find your satisfaction in, in whatever. But these things actually hold people in bondage. They don't set free. It's like a pit that can never be filled. And so these people are, are longing for peace. They're longing for pleasure. But all they're getting as a result of going after these things is pain. And so we see that these things are holding people in bondage. These behaviors are starting fights. They're hurting people. They're destroying relationships. They're wreaking havoc on the church. Again, these are Christians that James is talking to. See, they defile the name of Jesus because this behavior is completely opposite than what Jesus calls us to do and to live by. We see that these behaviors have a death grip on those people that are fulfilling these things. But Jesus came to set us free from those things. Verses 2 and 3, we see according to James that even prayers can be sinful. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, first off, there's a little nugget here that says you, you do not have because you do not ask. We got to understand that there are some things that God will not give until we ask for those. But, but we need to understand that, that God is only going to answer those prayers that we are asking in accordance to his will. And in verse 3, James make it, makes it very clear that these people have prayed, but their prayers are completely self-centered. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. So even these people's prayers are filled with this type of mindset that says everything is about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about what I can get out of life. Does this mean we shouldn't ask God for things? No, God wants us to ask him for things. He's, he's, he's a good father to us. But what we understand is that Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And so us too, we should be praying like that. And I'm guilty oftentimes of not praying those kinds of prayers because even, even me as a pastor, I'm guilty of praying prayers that are completely self-centered. The same thing that James is talking about here. See, for some of us in this room, our lives are filled with chaos because of this me mindset. See, this group that James is talking to had this particular mindset and it was causing all kinds of issues. It was, it was causing all kinds of problems. So the greedy people, they couldn't find peace. The, the coveting people, they don't have peace. The lustful people, they don't have peace. All these issues that are going on in the church are a result of these people and the way they're living out their lives. And they're longing for peace and they can't find it. And some of us in this room would say that I want to have peace, but I can't seem to find it anywhere. Like I'm trying to be satisfied by things, but nothing is satisfying. And you see, the cause for this lack of peace, honestly, is us. And that's what we see that James says, that it was lustful, envious, coveting behavior, a behavior that was completely self-centered. It was, it, was, it, was it was a behavior that was completely set on, hey, what can I get out of life? And so we see that according to James, the me mindset is the cause for this lack of peace. Now let's go back to our text. Let's look at verses four through six. James says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So point number two is this the consequence. So we saw the cause. The cause was this this particular mindset, all these fights and this lack of peace that was that was existing in individuals lives and in the church's life was a me mindset. That was the cause. Now we're going to see the consequence. The consequence of this me mindset is that you become a spiritual adulterer. This is what James says. This prideful attitude is unfaithfulness to God. It opposes him. It rejects him. It rejects him. With the rise of the internet and social media, it's very common nowadays, and it's unfortunate that we would hear about so many Christian leaders that have been unfaithful to their wives. Some moral failure, maybe it's drunkenness, adultery, whatever it is. Even uh, yesterday, uh, or yesterday or Tuesday, somebody was talking about a, a prominent Christian leader who failed in the area of a relationship with some other woman. And again, these things, unfortunately, are very common, and we see that adultery is wicked, it is evil, it tears relationships apart. Many of you have experienced this, uh, maybe from a parent or, or, a, or a grandparent, and you see the pain that it has caused. And you know that, again, when we hear about adultery, we cringe our hearts hurt. Our hearts hurt when we hear about leaders that, that go that direction. But the reality is, is that James says that the believer who has the me mindset is committing spiritual adultery because it's a, it's a type of unfaithfulness to God. So he calls this group of Christians spiritual adulterers. Their selfish, prideful me mindset has spit in the face of God because they're seeking to fulfill their own self instead of looking to God to fulfill them. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for something outside of God's will. And unfortunately, this is a struggle for Christians. This is a struggle for us because we live in a world that says, hey, find pleasure in this. Find satisfaction in this. It's a mindset that says, hey, what can I get out of this world? And James says, you are an adulterer. You're an adulteress because you're looking to find something outside of God's will and outside of God's plan. In verse 4, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This This word enmity is the word hostility. So the one who would become a friend of the world is becoming hostile towards God. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. In a figurative sense, James is saying that this group of people, you've left your true love, that is God, and you've gotten in bed with the world. You've you've claimed to be a Christ follower, and yet you've gone after the things of the world. You've become a friend of the world. You see, this me mindset... Again, maybe it's pride, greed, lust, envy. It may seem somewhat innocent, but its consequences are destructive. And it is enemy-like behavior towards God. Verse 5 says this, Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? See, God is not okay with his people going after the things of the world. He's not okay with his people becoming a friend of the world. And I'm not talking about being a friend with sinners. We talked about that last week. 
What James is talking about is aligning one's life the same way that the world has aligned. You see, God is jealous for attention. He's jealous for your devotion. He is jealous, jealous for his glory. And you may be thinking that you thought jealousy was something bad. But God is the only one that actually deserves all of our attention. He's the only one that deserves all glory and all fame. And so his jealousy is actually righteous. And he yearns for that. He yearns for you to worship him. He yearns for you to be fully devoted to him. He yearns for you to say yes to him in every every situation. And I wonder what the Christians were thinking when they were reading this portion of James. Because James' words here are very harsh. And if you're like me, when I read this, I think to myself, man, I'm struggling with these things. I'm I'm not perfect in all of these things. And so I asked myself, man, what, what's the hope here? Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Because I feel like I mess up. Each and every day I fall short of God's standards. And I wonder if the Christians that were reading this letter thought the same. But James seems to answer this question in the next verse. Verse 6, he says this, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is greater than his demands. God offers us an abundance of grace, not just when we sin, but he offers us grace to live out a lifestyle that honors him and pleases him. If you're like me and you feel like you've failed to keep these commands and you know that you've been overtaken by this me mindset, you can have hope because God offers more grace. You may look at your life and you may see a certain amount of sinfulness. Understand that God's grace is greater. You may look at his demands and his commands and say, how in the world could I keep those? Understand that God's grace is greater, that his grace will sustain you. His grace will keep you. And when you fall, his grace will pick you up. And that because of God's grace, you can walk in, a, in, such, a, in such a manner that would honor and glorify him. And there's been no greater grace demonstrated than what God did over 2,000 years ago when he sent his son to come to this earth to live a sinless life. And again, we come to this Easter weekend, and I hope that you've been reflecting on what Jesus has done. We think about Good Friday when Jesus goes to the cross, where he bears our sin He takes punishment that we deserved. And we think about Sunday when he was resurrected. He came back to life. And that because he lives, we too can live. And we know that that Jesus knew that we would continue to sin, and yet he chose to die for us anyways. God demonstrated his grace through Jesus' death, through Jesus' life. And so we can have hope because of the gracious provision of Jesus Christ. And so if we continue in our text We see this in verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So lastly, we see this, number three, the cure. So we saw the cause, we saw the consequence, and now we see the cure. So what do we do? If we have this me mindset, if we have this mindset that's causing destruction in our own life, and it's causing destruction in the body of Christ, what do we do about it? 
Again, we just talked about God's grace, that, that it's so much greater. But understand that James just laid out some specific responses for the believers. And each of these responses are covered in grace. So understand that. But we also see this word, therefore. Or maybe your translation has the word then. So everything he's saying in verses 7 through 10, he's connecting it to verses 1 through 6. And he gives us seven general responses. And I want us to quickly walk through these. So the first thing James says is submit to God. If you have a me mindset, if you have a self-centered perspective, and you don't want to have that, submit to God. Submission, one person said, involves the surrender of the will. That's you saying, hey, I'm not going to do what I want to do, God. I'm going to do what you want to do. And there's a fine line because God has obviously given you specific passions and desires, but you as a follower of Christ must ask yourself, hey, do my desires align with what God's word says? And if they don't, you have to say no to those. And you have to say yes to God's will. And so we see that submit, submission should characterize our life. And submission doesn't mean that you sell everything that you have and you give all the money to the poor and you move to India. But it does mean you must be willing if God would to call you to do that. David Platt, uh, pastor, uh, former pastor at Brook Hills, he often talked about a blank check, that, that you would give God a blank check and let him write whatever he wants to on it. It's this idea that you'll do whatever you want, you'll give whatever he, he wants you to give, you'll go wherever he wants you to go. That's what it means to submit to God. It's to say no to your fleshly desires and yes to God. And we can only live lives of true submission by studying God's word and doing what it says. That's why we're studying it tonight. That's why I'm not giving you my opinion. If I gave you my opinion on how to live your life, on how to be a better student, on how to be a better whatever it is, that would be good, but that would be my opinion. And that's not going to help you. The only thing that you and I can base our life around is not opinions, it's God's word. That's why we've got to study it. It has eternal consequences. And so you and I need to be studying God's word because then when we study it and when we see what the text says, then we must align ourselves to it. That's what it means to submit ourselves to God. That if I come to a verse and I see that this verse says that something that I'm doing is sin, if I continue to live in that sin, I'm not submitting to God. In fact, I'm turning my back on God. But if I come to a verse and it says to live in a particular way, to follow God in a particular way, and I change my life to live like that, that's what submission looks like. But I don't know how to do that unless I'm in the word and I'm studying it. So number one, we see we've got to submit. Number two, we've got to resist. Verse seven says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So first off, there's great comfort here. Because if you feel beat up, like I often do from the enemy, Understand that we just read, according to God's word, that the devil can be resisted and that there are moments where he will flee from you. And so we can cling to that. But we have to understand what does it look like to resist? How do we resist? Well, go to God's word. What did Jesus do in Matthew chapter 4? Before he started his ministry, he spent 40 days of prayer and fasting. The enemy, Satan, came to tempt him and he fought back. He resisted with scripture. Jesus was so consumed with his father's word that, that, he, that he knew it, and that is how he resisted Satan. We see in John, that, or excuse me, we see in Matthew that, 
that in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus says to his disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. So we see that the word and prayer are how we resist against the enemy. So we look at passages and we, we allow them to fill our minds. There are many passages that when I was in high school, things I was struggling with, even in college, that I began to memorize. Passages like Colossians 3 verse 1 that talk about if you've been risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Passages so that so I can fight against the enemy when the enemy comes at me. And so I can say, no, I'm not going to put my mind on that. I'm going to put my mind on heavenly things. And so through the word and through prayer, we can resist Satan. We see another thing that James says in verse 8. He says, draw. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So first, James says to submit. He then says resist. He's now saying to draw. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what is James saying? How do we draw near to God? Well, this is the moment where we turn our back to our sinfulness. We turn our back to our wicked desires and we, and we face our Father. And this is an aspect of repentance. We turn from our sin. We turn from our wickedness. And we can rest assured that each and every time that we turn from our sin, that there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. We find this. The next thing that James says is to cleanse. In verse 8, he says, cleanse your hands. How do we cleanse? What's this look like in our life? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess our sin before God, we are agreeing with God that there is sin in our life. And when we turn from that, that's repentance, this is the aspect of the cleansing process. And we understand that when we do this, that there is forgiveness and God cleans us. And notice that James says, cleanse your hands. What do you do with your hands? You work with your hands. These are external things. So this is something on the outside. And this is a little bit different than the next thing he says, which is to purify. But he doesn't say purify your hands. He says purify your hearts. So how do we become purified? Well, John chapter 17, verse 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. And this is Jesus, and he's praying this. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So Jesus is praying and he's saying, sanctify them, purify, purify them, set them apart. So we understand that to be purified, we've got to be in the word. The word purifies us. It's like water that washes over us. If you've ever had a long day at work and you go home and you take a shower and you feel all clean as the water rinses over you, God's word is like the water that rinses over us. And the filth and the dirt that is in our life, the, the, the filth and the dirt that's in our heart, it is cleansed, it is purified when we submit ourselves to the word, when we go to the word and we allow it to rinse over us. Purify. The next thing that James says is to weep. And this is interesting. Why would he tell us to weep? Verse 9 says, lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is the moment where we realize that what we have done, our sin, it has grieved God. It has hurt God's heart. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Each and every time we sin, we grieve the spirit. When we choose to follow our flesh, we grieve the spirit. And if our sin grieves God, then shouldn't our sin grieve us? If our sin breaks God's heart, shouldn't it break our heart? This is the moment where we realize that we've sinned and we get on our face before God and we cry out to him and we mourn over our sinfulness. Is there forgiveness? Absolutely. But we should still mourn over that. We should still mourn over our sinfulness. If I committed adultery against Angela, if I was unfaithful to her, but then I came to her and I said, hey, I'm sorry, and she forgave me. If there was no mourning in my life, if there was no grieving, it would be a little bit odd. In fact, you would wonder, do, do you really, are you really sorry? There's been moments where I've, where I've talked to different people and I've heard about different things that they've done and you too have probably done this. And I've seen no mourning in their life for maybe some things that they've done. There's, there's no sense of repentance. There's no sense of, of a broken heart for sin that they've committed. Maybe you've even experienced this in your own life, but then God got a hold of you and your heart began to break for maybe a sin that's been in your life. That's happened in me before, where I'd go for a certain period of time without thinking about something going on in my life, and then God would make it very clear that there was sin, and then there's brokenness there. And so this should be evident in a believer's life, that we would mourn over our sinfulness, that we would mourn over this. And the last thing that James says is to humble, to humble yourself. Verse 10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility is the opposite of this me mindset. Humility and submission, they go hand in hand. See, when we take a humble mindset, we position ourselves under God's authority. And ironically, we see that God exalts the humble. Isn't it interesting that a prideful, envious, lustful person wants to exalt themselves? But God says the way to be exalted is actually to humble yourself. And so the person who is lustful, envious, coveting, prideful, they will never be satisfied because they will continue to exalt themselves looking for these things to please themselves. They'll be hurting everyone around them and they'll be hurting themselves. But when we humble ourselves before God, we find that at his feet that there is mercy, there's grace, there's forgiveness. That when you and I come to the cross, there's healing and there's hope. And when we humble ourselves before Jesus, he exalts us. See, if we want to experience peace in our lives, if we want to experience peace in the body of Christ, we must cling to this passage in James. We must fight against the flesh. We must resist Satan. We must resist the flesh. We must submit ourselves before God. And we can only do this through Jesus. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. If we're going to live this life, we can only do it through the power of Jesus. I want to close with a story. Uh, one of the interesting things that I like to do is, is, is read biographies or autobiographies, and so I've read a few. And I was looking at, 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 a, at, a, at a particular excerpt uh, of a missionary named Adoniram Judson. Anybody ever heard of Adoniram Judson? Yes? No? So he lived, he was born in 1788, and he died in 1850. He was a missionary to Burma, which is now known as Myanmar. So a little bit of his story, he rebelled from his parents' faith when he was about 18. 
And so he, he was probably what we would call an agnostic. So he believed that there was a God, but he didn't believe in the God of the Bible. And he went on to college, but in college, God got a hold of his heart. And he felt called to go into the ministry. And so when he graduated college, he had some great opportunities. The college that he graduated from was offering him a position to teach. And the biggest, most, most wealthy church in Boston was extending a position to him for him to be an assistant there. And so he would have been set for life financially. So he would have had money and he also would have had power. Again, teaching at, 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 a, at a university and then being at a, at a large church. So money and power. And yet Adoniram said no to both of these because he believed that God was calling him to be a missionary to Burma. And so we see that he spent four decades in, in, in Burma. And after four decades, we see that Adoniram led about 25 Burmese people to the Lord. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, man, that's not really a big number. He was there for 40 years, 25 people. And what I was reading, it said that 10 of these people, only 10 of these people probably lived out their faith. So of those 25, only 10 really seem to have been true converts. So I don't know how Adoniram felt. I don't know if he went to his grave feeling defeated. But what's interesting is during this time of being in Burma, he translated the scriptures into the Burmese language. And so he passed away, but there was a celebration that was given at the 150th anniversary of this Bible being translated into the Burmese language. And so there was this celebration that was given, and one of the pastors hosting the celebration was asked what he knew of Judson. And here's what he said. Whenever someone mentions Judson's name, tears come to my eyes because we know what he and his family suffered. Today, there are six million Christians in Myanmar, and every one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, the Reverend Adoniram Judson, a man that goes to his grave, and he's only seen 25 people come to know Christ. He spends 40 years doing ministry. None of you know who he is. He had an opportunity to be at an extremely large church, to be, a pro to be a professor or a teacher at a university. He says no to that because, because he knew that God had a plan for him, and he aligned himself to do what God wanted him to do. He didn't have the me mindset. He had a mindset of, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he went to his grave probably wondering if he was, quote, unquote, successful or not in ministry. And yet there's now millions of people who are able to trace their faith story back to this man. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank